Our story begins with a staggering question addressed to Jesus. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? You can hear from that question that it is dripping with doubt and disappointment. You can feel it, can't you? Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? What makes this question so shocking is that it's found on the lips of John the Baptist. For most of us, John is a super saint. He's one of those guys that's always convinced of his convictions. And yet here, in Luke chapter 7, he seems to be shrouded by doubt, overwhelmed by disappointment, and he asks the bone-crushing question, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, throughout the gospel, John is one of the few people who seem to consistently identify and recognize Jesus. You may recall that earlier in Luke's gospel, it is Luke who tells us that when John was in his mother's womb, he began to leap for joy when Mary came to Elizabeth to tell her that she was carrying the Christ child. There's no shred of doubt in that embryonic experience, is there? there? There's no shred of disappointment in that prenatal condition. It is there, right before he is to be born, that John the Baptist leaps for joy. He doesn't leap asking the question, are you the one or should we expect someone else? I mean, he's filled with joy and excitement. Years later, it's this very same John who recognizes Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no doubt in that statement, is there? There's no shred of disappointment in those words. And in the preaching of John, as he's talking about Jesus, he says, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, he's far more powerful than I am. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In that proclamation, there is no doubt as to the identity of Jesus. Consistently, throughout the gospel, it is John the Baptist who seems to be convinced of his convictions until you get to Luke chapter 7. And it's here that we hear that question that is raw and real are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else are you the messiah or have i made a mistake are you the holy one or are you just a hoax i've put all my eggs in the jesus basket and now i'm wondering if i've been duped are you the one or should we expect someone else what would cause a super saint to ask a question like this? Well, Luke says that John's disciples came to him and told him these things. And upon hearing these things, he called two of them together and asked this question. So, it begs the question for us, what are the these things that caused this question? The answer to those types of questions 
are always found in the context. Just look at a couple of stories that precede the one that I just read for you. Undoubtedly, those disciples of John told John about the servant who was healed. That servant that belonged to the centurion living in Capernaum. They said to him, we've heard the story that this Capernaum centurion had a servant whom he valued highly and he was sick and he, and he sent word to Jesus and Jesus healed the servant without even coming in the house. He just sent word and the servant was healed because Jesus is Lord over the house without even being in the house. It's amazing, they said. And no sooner had Jesus healed the servant than he went into a village called Nain. And there he bumped into a funeral procession. It was the funeral of a widow's son. Now think about this. This woman is in dire straits. I mean, she's already been gripped by grief because she's a widow. She's already buried her spouse. And now, life has thrown her a vicious curveball. Now she has to bury her son. Most believe this is her one and only son. So she's thinking to herself, how am I going to survive? Who's going to take care of me? Some of you this morning know the pain of burying a spouse. And some of you even know the pain of having to stand at the casket of your child. You can relate to the grief that gripped the heart of this widow. Jesus bumps into the funeral procession. And he puts his hand on the casket, and the funeral procession stops. You bet your bottom dollar it stops. Because Jesus, the holy rabbi, was not supposed to come in contact with a corpse. He would be declared unclean. Yet Jesus put his hand on the coffin. He looked at the dead corpse and began to talk to the boy. Little boy, get up. And the little boy sat up in the casket, turned around, and began having a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus scooped him up out of the coffin, turned, and gave him to the grieving mother. The crowd went crazy. They said, God has now come to help his people. God has now come to help his people. God has come to help his people. And the people rejoiced. Those are the stories that precede the passage that I just read for you. Those are the, these things that were told to John which prompted this question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? You expect John to respond in joy. He's always responded in joy when it comes to Jesus and the things of Jesus. But in this moment, he doesn't rejoice. In this moment, he's overwhelmed with doubt, fear, disappointment, disillusionment. What would cause a super saint to get like this. Well, let me ask you this question. Where is John in this passage? The last time Luke ever mentioned John was way back in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. It's there in those verses that we learn that John is in prison. He was thrown in prison by Herod the Great because John spoke against Herod's illicit affair with his sister-in-law, his brother's wife. And John wasn't quiet about it. John's rarely quiet about anything. 
And John was adamant that this was wrong. It is defilement in the very presence of God. It is blatant disobedience. And he says to Herod, this must stop. Herod doesn't know what to do. He's kind of afraid of John. So he just flings him into the prison, hoping that he rots there. That's the last place we found John. That's the place where John still resides. He's still in prison. I know it only takes a few minutes to go and read from Luke chapter 3 to Luke chapter 7. It would have taken many months to live. John's been in prison a mighty long time. He's incarcerated not because of a crime. He's incarcerated because of his conviction. He stood up for what was right. He stood up for what was moral. He stood up upon the word of God. He said, thus saith the Lord, just like a prophet is supposed to say. And what was the result? It landed him in prison. Now, to add injury to insult, or insult to injury, it is John who must have heard about the first sermon that Jesus ever preached. Because when Jesus started his ministry, John was already in prison. And probably his disciples had come to him and told John about the awesome sermon that Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth. On that particular Sabbath, Jesus was the guest preacher. This was going to be the sermon that put Jesus on the map. It was going to be the sermon that launched him into ministry. He's been invited by his hometown friends and family to come and to preach. And so he's there as the guest preacher. He takes the scroll of Isaiah. He stands up uh, in the pulpit to preach. He opens the scroll and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoner. Sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After reading the text, he rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant, goes back to his seat, takes the position and posture of authority, and he locks eyes with every person in the crowd of that Nazareth synagogue and says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The crowd didn't know how to respond. Nobody ever taught like that. Nobody had the boldness to say that the scripture was now fulfilled in the preacher. And nobody would ever say that. But Jesus said that. He said, this describes my ministry. The spirit of God is upon me. And I will do these things in this text. For today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Undoubtedly. John the Baptist heard about that first sermon of Jesus. Undoubtedly, while he's in prison, he hears that Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah, and he said this is going to mark his ministry. One of the things that in that passage that it says that the Messiah will do is that he will set the captive free. Where is John? He's in prison for crying out loud. What does that mean? For John's mind, that means that before too long, Jesus is going to come over and bust me out of jail. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. Jesus doesn't come. 
if anybody should be set free, it's John. John's in prison not because he did anything wrong. He's in prison because he did a lot of things right. Jesus should pop over the horizon. Jesus should come and fix it. He should, he should show up and show off. He should step in and save the day. At the very least, Jesus could have a prison ministry, don't you think? But he never even visits John, let alone break him out of jail. And after a while, John is filled with despair and doubt and disappointment. Are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Are you the Messiah? Or did I make a mistake? Are you for real? Or is all this fake? Are you really the Savior? Or is everything that we see just a scam? Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Friend, have you ever had a chapter 7 experience? You ever had a moment when you questioned the veracity of God? Have you ever had an experience, a crisis, a concern, a situation where you have wondered why God hasn't shown up to fix your problem? You're incarcerated uh, because of despair. You're there not because you've done anything necessarily wrong, but you find yourself there and you're waiting for God to show up and to show off and he's nowhere to be found. A poet called it the dark night of the soul. Henry Blackaby called it the crisis of belief. It's the crossroads where sometimes you feel as if you're in the crosshairs. It's that moment when you ask yourself and you ask of the Lord, are you for real? Are you going to help me? Are you going to deliver me? Or are you going to come? Have you ever had a chapter 7 experience even if you are a super saint you my friend can still have a chapter 7 experience where you are gripped with despair and I'm not talking about the blues I'm talking about spiraling down into depression I'm talking about being overwhelmed and overcome wondering where is God are you real can you fix it are you going to fix it have you ever had a chapter 7 experience Jennifer had a chapter 7 experience. After 18 years of employment, she was called into her boss's office and he told her that her services were no longer needed and she was fired on the spot. And for the first time in her life, she was facing unemployment and she was single. She had no other income and she wondered, what am I going to do? Chad had a chapter seven experience. When he was told by the doctor that his fun-loving five-year-old was diagnosed with leukemia, and the doctor didn't know if he was gonna make it. Larry had a chapter seven experience. When after 22 years of marriage, his wife sat him down to say, I don't love you anymore, I want a divorce, 
And the truth of the matter is, she'd had another boyfriend for the last three years, a co-worker. You could have knocked Larry over with a feather. Lauren, the 17-year-old homecoming queen, had a Chapter 7 experience. All of her life, she'd been involved in gymnastics and cheerleading, but now, in the midst of her senior year, she was cut from the varsity cheerleading squad. And that was her identity. And she didn't know what she was going to do. Bill had a Chapter 7 experience. He was two years into retirement. And he got a letter in the mail that said that his retirement pension for the upcoming year was going to be cut by 40%. And he thought to himself, how in the world am I going to pay bills for the rest of my life? You ever had a Chapter 7 experience? You ever had a moment when you wondered, where is Jesus and he's nowhere to be found around your prison? He's nowhere to be of help. And you wonder to yourself, is Jesus going to come and show up? Is Jesus going to come and rescue the prisoner? You ever had a chapter 7 experience? If you have, what do you do with it? The pain is real. The heartache is gut-wrenching. Nobody can deny it. But what do you do with it? What do you do with a chapter 7 experience. I can tell you what John did. John sent his bone-crushing question to Jesus. It's a pretty good idea. It's a big question. It's a bone-crushing question. Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? I guess John could have sulked in his despair, but he didn't. I guess Jesus could have reprimanded him, but he didn't. Did you see how tender Jesus was? It was in that moment that Jesus was healing the sick, those with illnesses and diseases. He was restoring sight to the blind. And when he heard the question, he responded, go and tell John this report. Report what you hear and what you see. For the blind can see. The lame can walk. Those with leprosy are cured. The deaf can now hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is being preached to the poor. You go and tell John this report. You tell him that lives are being changed. That people are being transformed. Tell him that the gospel is going forward. I always find it interesting that Jesus has an uncanny ability to transform our question marks into exclamation points. He takes our interrogatives and flips them into imperatives. Did you see what he did? The question, are you the one who was to come? The command, go and tell what you see and what you hear. Does God really love me? Is the question. The answer, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. The question, does God really care? 
the command. Cast all your cares upon the one who cares so very much for you. The question, can God help? The answer, the command. Our God is able to do immeasurably more we can ever ask, think, or imagine. Jesus has an uncanny ability to take our questions, transform them into exclamation points. He takes our interrogative and makes it into an imperative. Friend, I want you to know that this morning I don't want your suffering to keep you from the Savior. Don't allow your condition, your circumstance to keep you from Christ. Sometimes your suffering has little to nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the glory of God in you. Sometimes your suffering has nothing to do with you. Remember the story of Job. Job's story tells us that in the opening chapter that God speaks behind Job's back. Friends, sometimes God's going to talk about you behind your back. The devil comes to God and says, well, if you take all the blessings away from Job, Job will curse you. He'll turn his back on you. And the Lord said, you don't know Job the way I know Job. And all of the experience, it's not about Job. It's about the God of Job. Because, friends, sometimes your suffering has really very little to do with you. It has a lot to do with the glory of God in you. It's perfectly okay for you to ask God why. Just don't demand a response. Because after all, does God owe us a response? God doesn't owe us an answer, does he? It's okay to ask the question why. It's okay to to plead your case before the Lord, but realize that he is God and you are not. And he does all things well. As the Lord said to Job, he says to you and me today, where were you when I taught the sun how to shine? Where were you when I only told the ocean to come so far? Where were you when I spoke and the world came into existence? And Job said, oh, woe is me. I am just a man. I'm just a servant of God Almighty. My friends, it's okay to ask the question why. Just don't demand an answer from God. I have a friend, and this friend really is a super saint. He is a godly guy. He loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But a few years ago, it was his five-year-old son that was diagnosed with leukemia. And he told me, I asked God questions of why. Why my son? Why not me? Why not give the cancer to me, not my son? Are you going to heal him? Is is he going to live? Why give him only to take him away just a few short years later? Why, Lord, why? My friend took all those questions to the best pediatric cancer doctor in Memphis. And they went through years of treatment. My friend told me that he would walk on the hallway of the hospital and see all these precious children, all with bald heads, 
all precious in the sight of God. And as he would look at them, he would wonder, what is the Lord going to do? Some, some people got better. Others got worse, and still others died. And my friend asked himself, what's going to happen to my son? Is my son going to get better? Is my son going to get worse? Is my son going to die? What's going to happen? I'll never forget the day that my friend looked at me and said, I hate cancer. I hate it. I said, I know. And friends, I, I am not trying to be crude, so please don't be offended to what I'm about to say. But my friend looked at me, and he said, cancer sucks. I said, I know, it does. He said, to watch your son, and to wonder, is he going to live, or is he going to die? Why does he have to go through this? And as his eyes were tearing up, so were mine. And he said, I'll never forget I was walking on the hallway of that hospital and I went into the chapel and I spent a lot of time in the chapel, he said. And one night I had a turning point. I went to the Lord in that chapel of the hospital and I said to the Lord, Lord, I would not choose this. I hate it. I would not choose this. But if you choose this for me, I Choose you. Wow. I would not choose this, but if you choose it for me, I choose you. I trust you. I trust that you know my prison. I trust that you do all things well. I know that you may rescue some and not rescue mine, but I trust you. Oh, my friends, can you say that today? Can you say to the Lord, Lord, I would not choose this imprisonment, whatever it may be. I would not choose this suffering. But if you choose this for me, I choose you. Because sometimes you look around and God rescues some people from your same prison, but he doesn't rescue you. Sometimes he heals children from your same prison, but he doesn't heal yours. Sometimes he restores other marriages in your prison, but he doesn't restore yours. Sometimes he retrieves other prodigals, but he doesn't retrieve yours. Sometimes he opens the door of employment for others, but he doesn't do it for you. And in that moment, can you say, I would not choose this, but if you choose it for me, I choose you. I trust you. I believe that you do all things well. This is why Jesus said, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus knows that John is not going to be delivered from prison. But Jesus is going to help John persevere in prison. Blesses the man who does not fall away on account of me. The friends leave, and then Jesus turns to the crowd, and he talks about John behind his back. He says to the crowd, what did you go out to see in the desert when you went out to hear him preach? Did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? Did you go just to see the geography of the land? No. Did you go out to hear a Backless preacher just blowing hot air and swaying like a reed. No. 
Did you go out to see a well-dressed man living in a lap of luxury? No. If you wanted to see a well-dressed man living in a lap of luxury, you go to a palace, not the desert. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, a pretty good one. In fact, he's the fulfillment of what Isaiah said, that the one coming before the Messiah will be like Elijah. He'll prepare the way for the Lord. And Jesus goes on to say of John, there is no one born of, one, of women greater than John. But anyone born in the kingdom is even greater than John the Baptist. What does he mean by that? Anyone born by faith, anyone born into the kingdom of God through the repentance of sin is even greater than John. You see, Jesus and John, they preached the same message. They had different trappings, they had different styles, but they preached the same message. John declared repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. Jesus preached the very same thing when he would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The entrance into God's kingdom is through a bended knee and a broken heart of repentance. And then Luke gives a parenthetical statement. He says that all the people, those tax collectors, those sinners, those prostitutes, those who had gone on the banks of the Jordan River to hear John preach, go through the waters of baptism because they knew they were sinful, they wanted to uh, get all the dirt uh, of their sinfulness out of their life. When they heard Jesus, they knew that he was speaking the truth of God. But then, Luke says, the Pharisees, the scribes, those people who are very religious, very theological, very schooled, very educated, they didn't like John and they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like John and his message, and so they're not going to like Jesus because it's a pretty much the same message. And by rejecting John and rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting entrance into God's kingdom. Friend, can I tell you, the only thing worse than not repenting of your sin is believing that you have no sin to repent from. That's the description of these Pharisees and scribes. We reject Jesus, we reject John because we don't need repentance. We're already in the kingdom of God. And the only thing worse than a person who doesn't repent is a person who thinks he has nothing to repent from. So then Jesus concludes with a parable. He says, what can I compare this generation to? This religious generation, this generation of Pharisees and scribes, what can I compare them to? He says, this is what I'll, I'll compare them to. They're just like a bunch of childish brats. That's the parable. They're children playing in the street, playing in the marketplace. But they're brats because if you don't play their way, if you don't play by their rules, then they'll yell at you and they'll kick you out of the game. And he says, that's what the Pharisees are trying to do to John and me. <laughs> you see, Jesus says to the first one, the, the, the brats in the street, they say, we played the flute, but you wouldn't dance. They're talking to John. John is too rigid. He's too prophetic. He's too uptight. He needs to get loose. He needs to dance. We played the flute for you, but, but you would not dance. You did not dance to our tunes. You did not play to the religious music that we were playing. You didn't play according to our games. So they said of John, he's off his rocker. He's unstable. He's possessed by a demon. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus has the same message of John, but he has a far different method. 
Jesus goes where the people are. He enters into table fellowship with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. And so the Pharisees and scribes, they say, Jesus, life is not all of a party. We played a funeral dirge and you would not cry. You've got to be more serious than this. You're far too liberal for us. You are out there eating and drinking and parting it up with all types of sinners. We can't have that either. We tell you to be more serious, to be more sober-minded. We tell you that we've played for you a funeral dirge and you would not cry. Get out of our game. We no longer want to play with you. They said of Jesus, he is a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's not Baptist enough. He's not like us. And if he doesn't play by our rules, out. He can't play in the street with us. Jesus says the religious people of his day were like spoiled brats, children playing in the street. But he says wisdom, God's wisdom, will prove right. You can either follow religion or you can follow the righteous one. And God's wisdom will prove right. My friend, uh, if you are a super saint struggling with doubt, what do you do with that? I'll give you two quick points of application. First one. Take your bone-crushing doubt to Christ. Second, declare unwavering devotion to Jesus. That's what John did. You said, but wait a minute, Pastor, how do you know John did that? Well, according to Matthew chapter 14, one day Herod threw a party for all of his rowdy friends. And in that party, um, his mistress, Herodias, that's Philip's ex-wife, Herodias had a daughter. And uh, I guess, uh, like mother, like daughter, she sent her daughter into a room with a bunch of rowdy guys. And Matthew says that Herodias' daughter danced for them and pleased Herod greatly. Herod, probably in a drunken stupor, looked at her and said, darling, anything you want, I'll give it to you. I promise on oath in front of all my friends. She runs back to her mom. She says, mom, what should I ask for? And the mother said, you asked for the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. She comes back in and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on this silver platter. And Herod looked at her and he thought to himself, uh-oh. Now, Herod doesn't like John. He's kind of afraid of him. But he doesn't necessarily want to behead him. But he said this in the presence of all of his friends, and he's got to make good on the promise. So he signs the execution papers, and off they go. And that day, John's head was severed from his body. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, you can look it up. Matthew 14, verse 12, we read these words. That the disciples of John took John's body what was left. They buried it, gave him a proper burial. And then 
they went and told Jesus. It's subtle, but significant. John had already told them, regardless what happens to me, I want you to know I have unwavering devotion to Christ. Regardless what happens to me, whether I'm in prison, out of prison, whether I never get out of prison, regardless what happens, I want you to go and tell Jesus. I want you to go and talk to him because he will be able to help you because he is the Holy One. He's not a hoax. He is the Christ. He's not a con. He is for real. He's not a fake. He is the Messiah. He's not. We did not make a mistake. This Jesus is legit. I want you to go and tell him so they took his body, they buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Because, my friends, in the words of that great hymn, sometimes I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear these burdens alone. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus because Jesus can help me. And Jesus alone. My friend, this morning, you may come to this church hanging on to your faith by your fingernails. You may find yourself in a chapter 7 experience. You may wonder to yourself, is God ever going to show up? Is he ever going to fix this? Is he ever going to rescue me? Is he ever going to liberate me from my imprisonment? And maybe, maybe you're hanging on to your faith by a thread. This morning, I just want you to go have a little talk with Jesus. Give him your bone-crushing doubt. And declare unto him your unwavering devotion. I know. I understand. You would not choose this. Whatever the this may be. You wouldn't ask for it. You don't want it. You wouldn't even give it to your greatest enemy. You would not choose this. But if God chooses this for you, then you choose him. Because Jesus can help Jesus alone. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. There's some people here that are living in chapter 7. And today I pray, oh Lord, will you please be gracious to them and lighten their load. Will you please show up and will you please help them? Regardless, Lord, will you help them persevere even through the prison? Father, today there may be someone here who needs to accept you as Savior and Lord. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to join this church. Now is the time for them to come down the aisle, take me by the hand, and say, Pastor, I want this Christ. I want to be part of this place. Maybe they need to come and kneel here at the altar and pray unto you, Lord Jesus, we just have to talk to you. We must tell Jesus. Because Jesus can help us. And Jesus alone. It's in your name that we pray, O oh Lord. Amen.